Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Katie Orr, in for Alexis Madrigal. Vaccinations against COVID-19 for children ages 5 and up could become available in California by the end of next week. And once the FDA approves it, the state will mandate that all students be vaccinated to attend school. A handful of large school districts, including Oakland, already have vaccine mandates for students ages 12 and up that will go into effect much earlier. But major challenges remain, including barriers to access for some families and hesitancy about the vaccine, which was approved under emergency authorization. We take your questions about pediatric vaccines and school mandates. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. It was a big week in the fight against COVID. A Food and Drug Administration advisory panel recommended a dosage of the Pfizer vaccine for kids ages five and up. California is already preparing to provide the shots to 3.5 million eligible kids as early as next week. The news is exciting for many parents who've been waiting almost two years for a kid-friendly version of the vaccine, but some are still hesitant. And mixed into all of this is the growing list of school districts that are mandating the vaccine for school kids before the statewide mandate kicks in. Joining us now to talk about all of this is Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, a professor of pediatrics and epidemiology and population health chief at the uh, the Division of Pediatric Infectious D- Diseases from Stanford University. Mackenzie Mays is the education reporter for Politico California, and John Sasaki is director of communications for the Oakland Unified School District. And we want to invite you, the listener, to give us a call. We know there are a lot of questions and comments about vaccines and kids. You can call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Okay, Dr. Maldonado, my first question for you. As a parent, (laughs) my kids are still too young for this, but as a parent in general, is this vaccine safe for children? Absolutely. This is a very safe and effective vaccine. We have seen uh, over uh, um, a billion doses of these uh, COVID-19 vaccines administered all around the world. In fact, we reached a milestone Half of the world received one dose of vaccine this week overall since the beginning of the pandemic. And the studies on children so far have primarily come from the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, The others are still working on their data, but the five to 11 year old data looks 
uh, like it's a very safe vaccine. It's actually produces great antibody responses. At one third of the dose of the adult vaccine, the antibody responses are equivalent to the third, the higher adult dose in the in the twelve year age and older. And more importantly, it prevents disease in children. So it has demonstrated ninety one percent efficacy in preventing symptomatic COVID. I think a lot of the hesitancy of parents is that the perception is that this vaccine is brand new, that we just kind of whipped it up and, you know, put it out there for everyone to use. And we're only, you know, right now it's just for kids anyway, just has emergency approval. So explain a little bit, if you could, about the actual process. How long have doctors and scientists been working on this vaccine? Well, um, obviously, we didn't know about this virus until just a little uh, under two years ago. But uh, very early on, uh, the uh, scientific community was able to figure out the genetic sequence of the virus. And specifically, because of uh, it is from a family called coronaviruses, we knew that there was a particular protein on the surface called the spike protein. You've all seen it on TV and, and magazines. That protein is important for attachment of the virus to the human cell. And fortunately for us, of all the things that are terrible about this virus, the one thing that's most fortunate is that if you make immunity or antibodies to that spike protein, it prevents infection. And that has been shown over and over again now. So that's actually great because for many viruses and bacteria, you can't find one spot that really prevents infection. So companies began to make uh, vaccines directed against that particular spike protein. And the platforms for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are mRNA. Uh, mRNA technology has been around for 30 years and uh, there have been these platforms developed, but obviously uh, they have been developed for other vaccine, other viruses. Um, So we're able to pivot, but there's a lot of safety data and Uh, scientific effectiveness data for the use of these kinds of platforms. And can you explain the difference between the FDA's emergency use authorization versus full FDA approval? Is that something people should be worried about? No, I I think, um, you know, it's a bit nuanced, but essentially what a full approval means is that you have done, this is done in regular time, real time when you're not in an urgent situation where you're not in a global pandemic, for example, and you have time to build a vaccine, study it in hundreds of, or thousands of people over time, look for all kinds of other combinations. Should we give one dose? Should we give two? Should we change the dosing? There's all kinds of questions that have been asked. Those cannot be done under uh, an emergency like this where we are seeing Uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying, uh, including children who are dying and getting hospitalized. So uh, the the companies had to move more quickly, although very thoroughly, to do the vaccine trials that they always do for other vaccines, but not have the bandwidth to answer every single question and really focus on the critical one. That is, is the vaccine, does it create a good antibody response, and does it against serious COVID infection. And I think those questions have been answered and that's satisfactory enough to get emergency use. You get more nuance with the full approval where you get lots and lots more data about other dosage differences, et cetera. And what would you tell parents who are hesitant about this vaccine? How would you reassure them? 
Yeah, so um, I'm a pediatrician as well, and I work with the American Academy of Pediatrics, representing 67,000 pediatricians in the U.S. I don't know a pediatrician in that group that has uh, said they don't want children to be vaccinated. Um, and we still know uh, data from the Kaiser Family Foundation and others have demonstrated that pediatric providers are still very trusted among families. Um, I think pediatricians are good about understanding what the communication needs are for families and children. Um, and uh, that is, if people have doubts, and I think that's important. I mean, everybody needs to know, uh, to have their questions answered. They should go to their providers. If they don't have private providers, public health providers are well-equipped as well to answer questions that families have about these vaccines um, and then get them, uh, get them answered and help them feel comfortable uh, with what these vaccines that are being rolled out. Well, and comfort is going to be important because more and more school districts are going to be mandating these vaccines. Uh, the state has a, uh, a statewide mandate that will take effect later in 2022, but some school districts are moving ahead before that, including the Oakland Unified School District. And joining us now to explain a little bit about what the school district is thinking and what will be required is John Sasaki. Uh, John, so tell me a little bit, what is the what is the mandate that will be in place for Oakland Unified and when does it uh, take effect? Good morning. Thank you for having us on. Um, the, so this week, the Board of Education voted uh, into effect the specifics of our plan with regard to requiring our students to get vaccinated. And that means that kids 12 and up uh, will be required to be fully vaccinated. Uh, beginning on January 1st, 2022, so for our spring semester. Uh, this is, I, I do want to point out that I've seen some headlines about this uh, across the country even that indicated that this is a plan to drop students who are not vaccinated. And that's simply not true. This is a plan to protect our students, to protect our staff, to protect our families and our community as a whole. Uh, so this is about uh, educating our kids. It's about making sure that they have all the information that they need to make a really good choice. Uh, and, and of course, uh, we follow the doctor's lead. We follow the scientist's lead. Uh, that the, the best choice for all of us is to get vaccinated. So uh, this is about making sure that everybody's prepared with the kind of information that they have. And we, we really do need to dispel this, this misinformation that exists really across the country and here in Oakland. Uh, and so uh, putting in a requirement to get vaccinated and 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 ensuring that we as a, uh, an organization are reaching out to our families to inform them uh, with the latest information about the vaccines and the safety and the efficacy. Uh, that's what this is all about. And so we wanna make sure that everybody who is in our community knows that we're there to support them, we're there to protect them. Uh, you know, this is, um, you know, some people have raised this, this issue of the equity and, and saying that, that, you know, black and brown kids will be the ones who could be most adversely affected by a, a requirement to get vaccinated. But our black and brown communities have been most adversely affected by COVID itself. We've, we've lost a lot of people in our community uh, through COVID. And so we want to make sure that people get vaccinated. And that's what this is all about. And again, we want to invite our listeners to call in uh, or write in with their questions or comments. Uh, you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. What questions do you have about the pediatric COVID-19 vaccine? And for parents of school-age children, what do you think of school mandates for vaccines? Um, 
John Sasaki, you you made the point that Oakland Unified is not dropping kids from classes and from the school district. But how will you ensure kids who who don't want to or I guess whose parents don't want them to be vaccinated? How will you ensure that they do have access to class if they don't come physically to school? Well, there, there are a number of ways to um, kind of get around, if you will, this this idea of being dropped. Uh, first, first and foremost, uh, there are, we have a list of exemptions that students can receive, which include medical exemptions, personal belief exemptions, and timing exemptions. And, and by that, I mean that if a student, say, has had the first uh, dose of a two-dose series like Pfizer or Moderna by the time we start school in January, uh, then they will have an exemption to get the second shot. So there are a variety of ways that, that, that students can receive uh, exemptions uh, for the vaccine. And then if they don't, if they don't get vaccinated, if they don't have uh, an exemption, they can go to our independent study. Uh, so this is, we are providing a lot of uh, uh, opportunities for students to A, get vaccinated, B, get an exemption, and C, have uh, an alternative way to get their education. And, and so it's far down the list, this idea of, of dropping anybody. And we're going to be working very closely with people uh, to make sure that they know all their options and have all the information that they need. And John, uh, what have you been hearing uh, briefly? What have you been hearing from parents so far? Well, it, it really runs the gamut. Uh, we have a lot of parents who are very excited about the fact that their five and seven, 10 year olds will be able to get vaccinated sometime very soon. Uh, we have some parents who who clearly have, have uh, unfortunately been really exposed to a lot of misinformation. This idea that, you know, the vaccine isn't, uh, isn't uh, old enough, hasn't been around long enough to really be trusted. And bottom line is, you know, based on everything that we know, uh, it's it's like a seatbelt. All right, a seatbelt's not going to prevent everybody from dying. It's not going to prevent everybody from getting serious injuries, but it will prevent most people, in most cases, from getting really seriously hurt in an accident. Just like that. Thank you so you much. Know, the, the, the uh, I, I appreciate that analogy. Goes. Yeah, we're gonna we have to take a quick break right now. We're going into a break, and we still want to hear from our listeners. Give us a call 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or email us, forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. We're talking about pediatric vaccines and school mandates with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, a professor of pediatrics and epidemiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. 
John Sasaki, Director of Communications for the Oakland Unified School District, and Mackenzie Mays, Education Reporter for Politico California. And Mackenzie, I want to bring you into this conversation. Um, As John mentioned before the break, feedback from parents in Oakland has been mixed over uh, the, the vaccine mandate in that district. Uh, what are you hearing from parents across the state as California prepares for its own mandate? Yeah, well, I, I think right now, um, in addition to what every, all of the points everyone has brought up so far is we're watching, you know, operationally, logistically, how school districts can pull this off, um, especially the big districts we're talking about right now in Oakland, Sacramento, L.A., who are moving way faster than what the potential is for the state mandate. So when schools are already dealing with a staffing shortage, um, how are we going to sort of rush to get shots in the arms of kids, do family outreach? Um, and then there's also this, this big concern, which we heard out of Oakland this week, um, about you know maybe our most academically at-risk kids, uh, kids of color, low-income kids, who are least likely to be vaccinated would that mean that they're the most likely to go to some of these independent study programs, which a lot of research has shown is inferior to in-person learning? So there's just a lot of unknown right now. Uh, John, uh, to that point, is Oakland Unified going to be taking any steps to help people, you know, in in those population groups receive a vaccine? Uh, we've been doing that for months. We have we have had vaccine clinics at our schools. Uh, We've been doing a lot of outreach to our communities. We've been talking to parents, talking to students, talking to staff, uh, making sure that people have all the information that they need about vaccines. And and that's going to continue. It's it is about it really is about information. It's about education. That's what we're in the business of is educating our kids. And and that includes the science behind this. And so, you know, we do, uh, you know, community meetings. We reach out to kids individually. We talk to the student governments. Uh, and, and of course, we talk to our staff about uh, the things that they can tell uh, their students. And, and uh, fortunately, here in Oakland, uh, we have a, a staff requirement now, uh, as of September 7th, that has the vast majority of our, our population and staff uh, vaccinated. 94% of our teachers are vaccinated. So it's, it shows that it is safe. It's effective. Our, our, fam- uh, our staff feels much more um much more at ease with this whole situation because they are vaccinated. And, and we know that our students and our, and our families do too when they get the vaccine. So this is about ensuring that everybody has all that information. Dr. Maldonado, uh, you know, we, we were talking, of course, a lot about how to reassure parents um, that the vaccine is, you know, safe and effective for their children. But, you know, there are children who have had COVID. And explain for us a, a little bit about how the Delta variant has been affecting kids. Yeah, well, I think uh, the Delta variant, just for all of you who don't know this already, is uh, a mutation of this virus that is actually twice as infectious. So it is able to infect twice as many people. It's highly contagious. And um, fortunately, we don't see any signs that it is more dangerous or more severe. But because of that, it was able to reach pockets of the U.S. population that hadn't been infected in the previous surges. So this last um, summer, we saw tragic um, uh, rates of disease in children that we literally have not seen. September was the worst month for pediatric cases around the United States. 
and colleagues of mine, especially outside of California, where vaccination was actually not only not high at high levels, but almost actively discouraged, um, as was masking, saw ICUs, pediatric ICUs full of children on ventilators, um, hospitals that were turning away kids. So this is clearly a devastating disease for children if they are exposed in sufficient numbers. So um, I know that most people think this is not a severe illness in kids, but it can clearly cause disease. And we have seen that here at our children's hospital as well. I want to go to Steve in San San Carlos now. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, my question is whether or not the school districts or the state is considering exemptions for children who may have already gotten COVID and gotten over it. Uh, Dr. Maldonado, uh, can you take that question? If a kid has had COVID and has recovered from it, do they still need uh, a vaccine? And uh, let's start there. Do they still need a vaccine if they have had COVID? So I've been working with the state on the guidance based on what the FDA and the CDC has done. And then the, the governor's groups from Oregon, Washington, Nevada and California have weighed in on what their take is. And we don't have obviously any information because we don't know yet what the recommendation will be from CDC. But based on what we're seeing, um, we don't think that there needs to be any exemption for having previously had COVID. And not because we don't think it might be helpful, but as I said earlier, we have not done those studies yet. There's an article, there's an op-ed today's New York Times talking about this hybrid immunity idea, the fact that if you have COVID, you can get a vaccine and that should be good enough. It may well be true, but we just don't know that. Um, and I would not want to go down that path of just recommending half a, half a, a series to a child if we don't really know the outcomes yet, or to an adult for that matter. And so we really don't have an understanding yet of that. And there's no reason to consider, to see, to know that, to think that the two dose series will be harmful to a child And logistically, it's going to be very hard to figure out if somebody's previously infected, get a test, an antibody test, which we never recommend or very rarely, um, and then find out, well, then get one dose and then you don't have to come back. And how do you record that? So logistically, it's a nightmare. Scientifically, we don't have any evidence one way or the other. Uh, Karina writes, uh, I would like to hear what your guests have to say about the risk with young boys and young men for myocarditis with the vaccination, as we've received different information from different pediatricians in this regard. And I believe, Dr. Maldonado, this is uh, inflammation around the heart that has been seen very rarely. Yeah, so myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart. And I'm not a pediatric cardiologist, but I do um, have been hearing my colleagues, my pediatric cardiology colleagues, they, don't, they call this, they don't call this traditional myocarditis. And that is the risk of COVID disease causing myocarditis is substantially higher than the vaccine. Um, and the myocarditis that is, occurs by COVID disease and from other viruses as well um, is much more severe. And the risk, of myocarditis in uh, children and in, in young adults is, um, has been shown to really occur for, for reasons that we're not clear about in a young adult males and older children, oh, older boys. So primarily the 12 to 17 year olds here in the US and in other countries, they've seen it more in 18 to 30 year old males. But the risk is on the order of a few dozen cases per million doses given in that age group. So it's exceedingly rare. Uh, the risk of getting myocarditis from COVID is much, much higher than that. Um, So it is a risk. Now, the other thing to note is 
myocarditis in this age group from the vaccine is actually extremely mild. It's really, um, if you look at it compared to COVID myocarditis, um, it is, there's no, there's no comparison. It's uh, most of the kids do not need to be hospitalized. Um, some of the kids do present with uh, chest pain, so it's easy to identify and they require maybe a day or two of observation in the hospital. And those kids who have been followed out long enough have had no long-term effects from this myocarditis. So um, we do think that it is, there is a risk and pediatricians need to know more about this risk. And certainly that's been messaged, but it is extremely rare. Well, we know, Dr. Maldonado, that you have to get going, but any final thoughts before before you leave us this morning? Yeah, I, I wanted to remind everybody that a year and a half ago, we were talking about vaccines that would that we would accept that would be 50% effective in reducing uh, infections and death, hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. We have vaccines now that are almost double that effectiveness. They are highly effective. We have given, as I mentioned, over a billion doses. They're very safe. We want our children to be protected. And the data on 12 to 15 year olds and above is very good. It's a highly safe vaccine. It's easy to manage. We've done these trials here at Stanford um, as well. And um, it is, uh, we have not seen any issues. Um, the FDA reviewed it very thoroughly. And I think everybody voted with one abstention, all of the members voted to approve. So we're looking forward to an era where we can start the process of getting our children back into their mainstream social and school activities um, and keeping them safe from being put in the hospital. Dr. Yvonne Maldonado is a professor of pediatrics and epidemiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Maldonado, thank you so much for speaking with us this morning. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I want to go to a caller now, Andrew from San Mateo. Go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question is really about the list of vaccines that are already required. Uh, my understanding is for many years, you have to have vaccines to attend school. And what would happen to a student who doesn't get one of the standard vaccines like polio or MMR? And how different is that from the way COVID's being treated, if at all? Thanks. Take my answer up here. Thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, John Sasaki, can you speak to that? Uh, how is the COVID vaccine going to be treated differently from any of the other state uh, mandated vaccines? I, I, you know, in the, in the long term, I don't know that it really will be. And that's part of the point is that, you know, we do already require vaccines for, you know, a number of different diseases. And so this is just one more. And this to, to us, again, we follow the science. Uh, this speaks to the the efficiency and effectiveness of our scientists, of the research that's being done in the United States uh, and, and around the world on something like this. You know, the, the entire scientific community was dedicated to finding a fix for this situation, and they did very, very quickly. And, and that, that, to me, speaks to the greatness of the science that's going on, and it really just echoes what we've known for so long. You know, decades we've had requirements in place for vaccines, and this will be one more of them. And uh, we have a comment here for Mackenzie. Um, uh, Kate writes, I'd like to know from the education reporter if they've heard of any school districts uh, getting threats from community members that are against the vaccine mandates. Uh, Mackenzie, I know we've seen, uh, you know, footage from school board mem uh, meetings around the state that parents are pretty fi fired up. Um, how extreme has this been getting? 
Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. And, you know, John is right in that vaccines have always been required and it's been pretty, you know, run of the mill, uh, a part of enrolling your kids in school. But what's different is we're seeing this, this specific vaccine for COVID um, politicized in a way that a lot of us haven't really lived through. Um, and, and we know here and across the country, school board members are sort of ringing alarms about what they're dealing with. So not only are we trying to, on the ground, figure out how to get shots in time for these mandates, but you're also dealing with protests um, and a lot of anger from certain parents, a lot of fear from some parents. And so I, I just think that, yes, this is this is part of a, a long list of vaccines required for schools, but I don't think anyone can argue that it's not different and not, you know, really politicized. I'd like to go now to Roberto in South San Francisco. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. Yeah, I, I um, work in public health and have worked assisting with um, efforts to vaccinate folks and provide uh, vaccine education in low-income communities of color in the Bay Area. And I think there are, you know, some powerful models being deployed uh, like Umoja in the East Bay, uh, Unidos in Salud, uh, Black Health Initiative uh, here on this side of the Bay. Um, but what I'm, what I'm concerned about is that the approval um, for children is happening now. The mandates for children are beginning now, but I'm not sure that I see uh, an adequate level of deployment uh, for development of messaging for parents, uh, adolescents, and um, particularly in communities of color, low-income communities, uh, where by way of the research that's been done here locally, we've learned that there's a tremendous amount of, um, well, uh, I-, I think, well-founded distrust of the medical community, the research community, uh, scientific community. Uh, I think that what we've learned is that with trusted messengers in community, folks who've been doing work to support and assist community and their partnerships with the medical community is really effective. But I'm, I, I'm not sure that we have an adequate level of deployment and resources put behind those kinds of efforts currently, specifically for children parents of small children, adolescents. And I'd, I'd love to know if anybody on the call has ideas about what what we could do to move the leadership uh, locally to convene. Yeah, that's a great point, you know, Roberto. Um, yeah, thank you so much for that. And we actually have uh, Dr. Susan Phillip on the line now. She's a health officer for the city and county of San Francisco. And Dr. Phillip, tell me, what is uh, San Francisco at least doing to, you know, spread the word about the efficacy of these vaccines uh, to some of these uh, population groups? Well, thank you very much for for having me. I'm really happy to be here to talk about this and so glad to have Roberto's question because that has been a key uh, message, a key focus for us throughout the pandemic is working with communities and ensuring equity in access to these uh, life-saving vaccines. And so um, we are making that a priority when it comes to families and children. Um, We are so excited about this 5 to 11 age group becoming eligible for this prevention uh, tool. And we're going to be doing a series of town halls next week. We're going to do them in language 
So we'll have an English uh, version on November 2nd, and then Cantonese on November 3rd and Spanish on November 4th. And that is in addition to all the work that we're doing with community-led organizations and community members to ensure that we have vaccine that will be placed throughout the communities that have been most impacted, as well as across the city. Uh, Mackenzie, I want to bring you into this part of the conversation. Um, Talk to us a little bit about vaccine hesitancy. It seems like, you know, we have medical experts on here telling us that the vaccine is safe and effective, but yet we still are seeing this resistance. Um, Why do you think this is such a problem? And are we seeing it more among some groups versus others? Yeah, for sure. There are a few different whys. Um, And, you know, California has some of the best vaccine rates in the country. You know, the the statewide numbers are more than 80% of people are vaccinated. Um, But when you start to dig around um, by zip code, for instance, that changes. There are still big gaps um, among Black and Latino residents here. Um, There are still big gaps depending on low income, uh, household income. And so I think that's what's concerning, especially for school officials, because what will that look like? Will there be a disproportionate burden on which kids do not get access to classroom learning, especially after the past two years where we've had this learning loss issue because we were all sort of forced into distance learning because of the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, our public health officials know that. And um, actually just this week, the California Department of Public Health said that starting next month, they're really gonna ramp up vaccine centers that are based on school sites. You know, the governor's office is really ramping up parental engagement that's culturally competent, that specifically reaches out to the families that they're worried about, you know. Uh, We're talking about pediatric vaccines and school mandates with John Sasaki, Director of Communications for the Oakland Unified School District, Mackenzie Mays, the education reporter for Politico California, and Dr. Susan Phillip, the health officer for the city and county of San Francisco. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. What questions do you have about the pediatric COVID-19 vaccine? And for parents of school-aged children, what do you think of school mandates for vaccines? You can call us now at 866 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. We're talking about COVID-19 vaccines and school mandates for children. I want to go now to Lauren in Lafayette. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm going to preface this by saying that I am fully double vaccinated and I support vaccinations in adults, especially in our oldest populations and anyone with pre-existing conditions. However, I am the mother of a six-year-old kindergartner. And I have a real issue with the director of communications for the Oakland Unified School District making the blanket statement that anyone against giving kids this treatment is the victim of misinformation. It is completely dismissive. Um, A previous caller questioned about whether or not kids who who already had COVID should get the vaccination. And the answer from Dr. Maldonado was, we just don't know that yet. No, no. I think her answer was, I think her answer was, if your child had had COVID, does that mean they should not get the vaccine? And she was saying, no, we don't know if having COVID provides enough protection, so they should receive the vaccine. Uh, But I do take your point. I do take your point, Lauren, that, um, you know, there are a lot of strong feelings about this and you can be pro-vaccine for yourself and adults and afraid, uh, you know, just still worried about what it might do for your children. Um, you know, uh, first of all, I, I want to just clarify this with Dr. Uh, Philip. Uh, can you just weigh in again? If your child has had a COVID, a case of COVID, should they still get the COVID-19 vaccine? Thank, thank you. I think this is a really important point to, to clarify. And w- the, the thing I would say is that this vaccine, just as for adults, just as for the 12 to 17 year olds, is going through a, a series of steps that um, are really going to ensure it's safe, first of all, with the FDA advisory committee that just weighed in. And now it's with the FDA to say whether they're going to authorize it for the 5 to 11 year olds. But then there are additional steps. It is going to go to the advisory committee, to the CDC made up of experts. Uh, Dr. Maldonado was was part of that group previously. So there will be some real experts in pediatric infectious disease, public health, um, science and immunology weighing in on who should get the vaccine. So the FDA will say, is it effective? Does it work? Um, Is it safe? And now it'll go to CDC and its advisory committee to say who should get it. And that's where I think we're going to see some of this discussion about what about people that have had it before, kids who've had it before? What about um, kids with Uh, other serious medical conditions. Should this be for all kids or should this be for a subgroup of kids? So we're going to be hearing more about that. But I think the point uh, that was made earlier that we don't know that natural infection is is going to be sufficient uh, is really important. I think the other thing, speaking as a San Francisco health officer, we have done a great job at protecting our kids from everyone eligible 12 and up getting vaccinated and all of the other health orders, masking requirements that we put in place. So we don't have a lot of kids who have natural infection, luckily, because it has caused a a huge toll on kids nationwide in pediatric intensive care and and suffering. And we want to avoid that. So we, we think that it will be a general recommendation for vaccine, but we have to wait for this process to go through. And and we're all waiting to see uh, what's going to be the outcome of that discussion. Uh, Charles writes, as a parent of two school-aged children, I support mandates, but I'm curious why school staff have weekly testing exemptions and why that isn't allowed for students. I'm personally worried that students will be left outside and uneducated uh, and 
I'm that the students that will be left out will be the ones that uh, are least likely to engage in independent study. And Mackenzie, this is something that teachers across California can do right now, get a weekly test instead of of a vaccine. But that's not going to be the case for too much longer. Right. Yeah. So the the governor has has cracked down since then on on teacher vaccines. Um, But, you know, I, I think what your listeners speaking to is, you know, in in California, especially when it comes to education, local control really reigns. Um, We have 6 million public school students, um, over 10,000 schools. Uh, And so the governor has said, yes, we have this statewide mandate for students, for example, but that won't go into effect at a statewide level until potentially uh, next July. But that doesn't mean that schools on their own can't move forward with their own sort of policies. And so when we're looking at these big districts who are moving even quicker, we can see a lot of different examples of policies regarding things like this. You know, I know there are some districts that are moving forward saying, hey, if a student doesn't get vaccinated, um, they can get away with that by testing weekly. And then other districts um, who who take a harder line, like Oakland, and say, if you don't get fully vaccinated by this date, you could potentially be unenrolled from the district entirely. So, you know, I think that's part of parents' concerns, too, is because some critics have said that's led to a patchwork of of policies. Um, But but it is ultimately up up to these districts. Uh, John Sasaki, I I, want to ask you, why did Oakland decide to move forward with a January 1st mandate instead of, you know, waiting for the state mandate to take uh, to kick in? Uh, let me let me first say that uh, in response to the caller from Lafayette, you know, the, the misinformation is a very big issue in our country right now uh, and and in our community in Oakland. Uh, but that's not the only issue. And, and one of the speakers earlier brought up the issue of, of a, a history of racism in the medical community that, that has a lot of people very, very hesitant to trust, uh, rightfully so, frankly, to trust the, the efficacy, the safety, all those things uh, about the vaccine and, and the researchers and everything like that. So, so there really are a lot of things at work. Uh, misinformation is, is only one of them. So I just want to make that clear. Um, the Board of Education decided that, that it was just smart. And, and by the way, when, when, the, when the governor announced this statewide requirement for students, uh, he did say that, that school districts are free to act uh, more quickly than the state does. Uh, so this is us acting more quickly than the state is. And, you know, in the end, how much longer is it? It's one semester prior to uh, when the state uh, mandate takes effect. And so we are in a position that we just want to be proactive. We want to make sure that our kids and our families know that this is incredibly important for all of us to get us through the pandemic. I want to go to some calls now. Uh, Kathleen from Richmond, go ahead. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate the discussion. I, I think it's really important to be able to have a open discussion. Um, I I am a teacher. I am vaccinated. Um, my son is not yet vaccinated. He is uh, 16, and I do have some hesitancy. It's it's difficult to talk about because people get real shamed for their hesitancy. So first, I want to say that. Um, but I we're a family who we never get the flu vaccine, and we never get the flu. We're like always healthy. We never get sick. It, to me, it seems really unnecessary for him to get vaccinated because the risk is so low for him. And my confusion is a couple things. One, if it's 
emergency uh, release vaccine, how could they mandate it when research is still being done? So that that troubles me. Two, if it's so effective, why are we all these people getting booster shots? And then my last, my specific question is, are we expecting this to be an annual requirement? Like people are saying it's the same as like a polio vaccine, but polio vaccine, measles vaccines, it's like one time, one and done. But this is starting to look like it's going to be, you know, an annual thing. And, oh, okay, my very final last point is, Pfizer came out with research saying that boosters are effective, but isn't that a conflict of interest? Of course they want to be producing more vaccines when they're going to make a bucket load of money out of it. Okay, that's a lot. Thank you for listening. No, no, Kathleen, thank you so much. I think you raise a lot of points that people uh, are thinking about. Uh, Dr. Philip, let's just take, you know, her first point that they don't get flu. They don't get flu shots. They don't get the flu. They're fine. Her son is statistically not as likely to get COVID. He's young. She thinks he'll be fine. You know, what do you, what is your response to, to those, that way of thinking? You know, I can, I can understand this. And, and for, for the callers that are worried about their, their kids and they, and they're not sure what they should do. I, I mean, I can empathize. I have two young children myself. I am personally very excited for them to get vaccine. I'm an adult infectious disease doctor, as well as a public health official and my nine and six year olds. I'm very excited for them to get vaccine and have all the primary benefits, but also the secondary benefits of being able to stay in school and be around friends uh, more uh, than they have been in the past. But, uh, you know, to, to ask the question of why should a healthy uh, child get the vaccine, I think it's really important to remember that even healthy children can get sick with COVID. And of the hospitalizations that have occurred um, in children in this age group, over 8,000 hospitalizations nationwide, 30% have been in kids who have no underlying medical conditions. So it's very, very uh, possible for, for kids to get very sick. There's a, a small but real risk as well of, of long COVID. It's less than 10%, but it is still there. And then it's, it's their secondary benefits also. So their secondary benefits in being able to stay in the classroom. I think that uh, the, the other speakers have really spoken very eloquently to the, the harm of, of uh, learning loss and that social um, toll that that takes and that mental health toll that it takes. And then kids can also transmit infections. Um, we initially thought that that wasn't possible, but I, I think the, the data are coming out as we're learning more that it is possible for them to spread to, to adults and, and other people that may be more vulnerable than they are. So I, I think that there are multiple reasons why it is a, a good idea to uh, talk with providers, talk with your own pediatric provider and um, talk with some trusted um, experts, but then also hearing and thinking through the conversations around that are happening with the regulatory agencies that are working now uh, to, to really authorize and then get out the recommendations for kids to get the vaccine. Dr. Phillip, do you, do you see a future where we will have to get continuous boosters? Uh, or do you believe that, you know, after we get over this hump of the Delta variant, that will be sufficient for a while? What are you hearing on that? Well, I think, I, you know, I don't have a, none of us have a crystal ball to know exactly what's going to happen into the future. I uh, do agree with, uh, with boosters right now, particularly for people that are 65 and older. We want everyone in San Francisco to, to get those boosters. Whether the entire population that's, is going to be recommended to, to have those on an ongoing basis, I don't know. 
currently, I do think that we continue to collect data. CDC and um, the California Department of Public Health are working really closely. We need very large numbers of people being followed to understand um, exactly what's going to be needed. And, I, you know, the point about, well, it is in the company's best interest to, to have as many shots given as possible. I think that is why there is this really rigorous process of review by multiple steps to understand um, the booster question, but also uh, the pediatric vaccine data question. It cannot just be uh, based on the company's data and recommendation. There has to be independent review by uh, experts um, uh, nationwide on this. I want to go now to uh, Sophia from El Cerrito. Go ahead. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I think this is such an important conversation. Um, my question is basically for anyone who can answer it. My, um, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a four-year-old niece. And we're, my family is definitely in support of vaccines. We're all vaccinated, um, my parents. Uh, and myself and my husband. Um, and my question is that my hesitancy would only be around uh, getting the vaccine eventually for my daughter who's under five years old. And I'm wondering if that's something we're going to have to think about in the future and if it's or if it would even be provided like other vaccines are um, and how much of a worry it would be providing a vaccine uh, that's so new for a child under five years old. Uh, thank you so much for that question, Sophia. I've been wondering that, too. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Philip, what what are your thoughts on that? When might we see this discussion kind of extend to children who are even younger? Yes. I mean, those studies are ongoing. And, um, you know, as we know, uh, Pfizer submitted its data earlier this month for this 5 to 11 group based on studies that it had done in clinical trials um, with, uh, with, with kids in that age group. And there are trials that are ongoing with children that are, are younger than five right now. So that is going to be a, a separate process. It'll be similar. It'll have the same steps to it of uh, doing the trial, looking at the data, uh, submitting it to uh, the FDA and going through this process of, of potential authorization and then recommendations from CDC. And we don't expect that that's going to happen until the first quarter of next year. So, you know, I, I think that there's more discussion to come on this. And then clearly there's going to be a very rigorous um, review of safety data, as there is for this 5 to 11 group. So I also want to remind folks that the FDA went back to Pfizer and said, you know, we want you to enroll additional kids. We want an additional almost 2,400 kids enrolled because we want to see this additional data. So I expect they're going to have that same level of rigor when it comes to the children under five. And again, I, just as an underlying concept, I want to say that vaccines have been by far our most important public health intervention to erase, uh, you know, child mortality to to have kids live healthy lives and there are so many vaccines that we give kids that are safe and effective and this covid vaccine based on the data that we see is is going to be among them and how often they have to be given and and the other specifics we are we are uh, it's evolving and we're waiting and seeing but the benefit right now to kids um, greatly outweighs any of the risks uh, I want to read a comment right now. Um, Sarah from Mill Valley writes, the mRNA platform has been around for 30 years. And she asked, have there been 
other mRNA vaccines used for children? What is the data on those? Uh, Dr. Philip, have we seen this kind of vaccine used on kids before? You know, this is uh, this has not been uh, a, the, the platform has not been used routinely for for uh, for kids or for adults, but it's been shown to be really promising and really effective. And it's it's I'm glad the caller pointed out that the technology was not developed in the past year. It builds on decades of scientific knowledge um, and, and study. And, and so it is, it's um, really served us well with these COVID vaccines, which are, are proving to be uh, one of the best models, one of the best platforms for uh, delivering um, immunity and protecting people from hospitalization and death. And so we want that benefit for our kids as well. Okay, and I want to get in one last caller here, uh, Shri from uh, Belmont, uh, California. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Thanks for uh, getting me on here. So um, I'm a parent. I have a five-year-old and a 10-year-old, and I'm also an emergency physician uh, in the Bay Area. And my background is actually, before that, in mechanical and aerospace engineering. I'm very science-driven, very data-driven. And I just want to say that it's, it's crazy to me. Like, I, I empathize with, with parents out there who are anxious because – even amongst myself and um, my wife, who's also an engineer, my colleagues, uh, physicians, it's, it's crazy how effective the anti-vax rhetoric and the drumbeat of all these uh, malignant and, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty um, uh, kind of um, sort of upset about it. All, all the, you know, uh, kind of malignant anti-vax, anti-science rhetoric has been because it makes even people like myself um, kind of wonder, like, am I doing the right thing? Should I, should I wait? Like, it, it even induces vaccine hesitancy in, in people who are, like, the most, um, you know, hardcore of the, of the you know, champions for, for vaccination. You know, I got my booster the minute it was available. My kids are going to get vaccinated the second they can get shots in their arms. Um, but it plants well, thank the you seed so much, and, and I empathize. We really appreciate that. We also uh, want to hear Mary says those are who are vaccine hesitant seem to be missing the point that the vaccine isn't about you as much as it is about protecting the community as well. Uh, so we want to say thank you so much to our guests. This has been a great discussion. Uh, thank you to John Sasaki, director of communications for the Oakland Unified School District. Also, Mackenzie Mays, education reporter for Politico, California, and Dr. Susan Phillip, health officer for the city and county of San Francisco. Francisco. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan. Susan Britton is the lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimea Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Katie Orr, in for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with host Ariana Prail. In for Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.